0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good evening. Surprise. You know, <laughs> It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here. Um, we're in second Samuel tonight. I'll just get that out of the way right away because I'll forget to say it. Second Samuel chapter 16. If you need a Bible, you can get the attention of one of the ushers so you can follow along with us. Um, I want to get right into it tonight. so let's do this. let's pray and uh, and then we'll get into the message. We're going to go through chapters 16 and 17 tonight. Lord willing. all right so Father, we just uh, thank you again for being here and. Uh, as we sang in that last song, that we don't want to miss one word, you speak, Lord, and your word is life to us. And uh, and we just pray, Lord, that we would be open to receive it. So we pray, Lord, for open hearts. And Lord, if there be anything in our lives right now that would restrict us or keep us back from hearing you, we repent of it, we put it under the blood. And we ask, Lord, that Your Spirit would move freely in this place tonight. So use this text, Lord, use the truth that is eternal and that which was to speak to that which is. And so we ask You, Lord, to anoint our hearts in Your Word now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So there, there is a trait that runs uh, in my uh, my wife's side of the family, my in-laws, and it is successive from generation to generation, and. Uh, That is that they like to take the back roads, places. And uh, oftentimes they call it a shortcut, but it almost never is a shortcut. Like the time uh, my father-in-law took a shortcut while we were away in the Adirondacks, um, wanted to get back to the cabin that we had rented and ended up 15 miles from where he was supposed to be, which in the Adirondacks is very, very far from where you're supposed to be. Um, or, like the time my wife was coming back from Rochester and I was not with her, and she had our kids and uh, wanted to take a shortcut because she liked the way a certain road looked. And it uh, wasn't until my son, Rocky, who was young at the time, said, Mom, why are we in Pennsylvania? <laughs> that she realized that it wasn't such a shortcut. And we were all worried that she was dead somewhere because she got that lost uh, that time. You know, they like back roads, they like shortcuts. Um, and there's some people that are like that. They're just drawn in by that. Uh, but the one question that you have to ask yourself anytime you're going to take a shortcut or a back road is where does this road end, right? And uh, that's what I want to talk to you tonight. That's the subject. Uh, I really think of these two chapters is where does this road end? Uh, the context of, of our subject, of the text really is uh, a rebellion that has risen up in the kingdom of David. One of his sons, Absalom, has risen up and uh, revolted against his father. He has gathered a whole nation, really, of people around him. And uh, has defected, and he has risen up against David. David, for the sole purpose of sparing unnecessary lie, or sparing the taking of unnecessary lives, has abnegated the throne. He has taken the men closest to him, and he has left Jerusalem, and Absalom has come into the place and is there. Uh, there's a character in these chapters named Ahithophel who was the chief counselor of David, or the head of David's intelligence, the CIA, if you would. And he has defected also from David, and he is with Absalom. David's next-in-command counselor is a man named Hushai. And Hushai has gone with David, but David has sent him back to Jerusalem to play the role of the Allegiant spy, to pretend that he is on the side of Absalom in order to confuse the council, if you would, and hopefully overthrow the plans of Absalom. In fact, David's prayer, and we left off with it at the end of chapter 15, was that God would confuse the council of Ahithophel. That is, that God would use Hushai to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And uh, amazingly, that that prayer... And the consequent answer to that prayer is really going to be what turns the whole thing around. And I just want to remind you of that, that if you're in any kind of a battle tonight, if there's anything going on in your life that seems very serious, that seems like it's going to take a war, that it seems that it's going to take a lot of money or a lot of people or a lot of manipulation on your part, I just want you to know that more often than not, the thing that turns it around for your benefit and for God's will to be done is the prayer that you pray, the simple thing that you thought would never be what would ultimately bring things around. So now we have, as we come to this chapter, we have David in exile. We have his spy, Hushai, in Jerusalem with Ahithophel and Absalom. And David is ascending the Mount of Olives, leaving the city and moving towards the Jordan River. And it's there that we pick up. So chapter 16, verse 1. It says that when David was a little past the top of the hill, that is the Mount of Olives, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bre- bunches of raisins, and a hu- hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses be for the king's household to ride on, for your uh, wives that you've taken with you, for the young children that might be there, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Mephibosheth. Actually, he was Saul's son. We've learned about him in a previous chapter. And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abides at Jerusalem, for he said, today shall the house of Israel restore me to me, the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, behold, thine or yours are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech you that I may feign grace in thy sight, my Lord, O king. And so we have a weary, exiled David who's traveling with his uh, military, his advisors, his family. And as he crests the Mount of Olives, he is met by this man, Ziba, whom we, again, we met him in a previous study. Now, Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, the previous king, he had a son who was lame or crippled in both of his feet named Mephibosheth. And when David came into power, he had a desire to do good for a descendant of Jonathan. It was a promise that he had made and that he wanted to keep. And so he brought Ziba, this, I'm sorry, not Ziba, Mephibosheth, this crippled son of Jonathan, into the palace, and he gave Ziba, the man who has now met David, the role and the job of tending to all of Mephibosheth's fields and taking care of all of his property. So Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan, was David's family now and Ziba was the employee appointed to take care of all of Mephibosheth's property so that you understand what's going on. Now, Mephibosheth can't walk and Ziba sees an opportunity to get out from under this servitude that apparently he doesn't like and in the process also to get some personal gain or property for himself. So Ziba, this employee, leaves Jerusalem, comes to David on the Mount of Olives, brings to him a whole bunch of stuff, food, donkeys, resources. And then he lies and slanders Mephibosheth. And says that he has now defected to Absalom, hoping that the kingdom would be returned into the hand of the family of Saul or to the Benjamites. So we're going to find out that this is a complete and total lie and that Ziba is doing this only for his personal advantage. However, David believes Ziba, probably because he's tired, probably because he's very happy that all of this food and these resources are coming to him. And so he dispossesses Mephibosheth of all of his property and now gives it to Ziba. It's a very interesting move on the part of this man Ziba in this moment when he can capitalize on the situation uh, that is there right now. So here we have Ziba who has the advantage of having legs and he uses them to slander and then steal from a disadvantaged person. It sounds like something that might happen in the world that we live in, you know, (laughs) from time to time. I truly believe that if Jesus were on the earth today, if his ministry, his public ministry were to take place in this year, in this time, and let's even say in this country, I believe truly that it would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for us to determine which side of the political aisle Jesus would be on. Now, I know that some of you in here are going, no, 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 it wouldn't. I mean, don't you know the church? I mean, we know what side of the aisle the church stands on. We know what side of the aisle Jesus would be on. I don't think so. Because Jesus does not operate in the confines of party lines or party policies. And here's the bottom line in the reality about earthly politics is that there is both darkness and light on both sides of the political aisle. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And Jesus does not stand on the side of men. He stands on the side of truth and on the side of righteousness. When Jesus was confronting Joshua, when Joshua was about to go into Jericho, and and he was going to fight a battle, he was going to fight God's battle. Joshua saw Jesus but didn't know who he was and alarmed by his presence asked him, he said, are you for us or for our enemies? And the reply that Jesus gave to Joshua was no. He didn't say he was, he didn't say he wasn't. He said none of the above. And the implication was that this isn't about you and me being on your side. This is about me and whose side you're on. And Jesus stands on Jesus' side. Okay, there's darkness and there's light on both sides of the political aisle. Now, I personally believe in free markets. I believe in the freedom of people to make decisions, and I believe that there is something good in that. However, it also has a dark side. And the dark side of it is that it allows people that have advantages To take advantage and to suppress people that don't have certain advantages. And because of human greed and the fall, there is a dark side to even something that can be good. Now what we have here is we have a man who has an advantage. His advantage is that he has legs. There's another man who has a disadvantage. He does not have legs. Because he does not have legs, David has made laws and provision for him to be cared for, for him to be protected, for his stuff to be protected, so that people that have advantages that he doesn't have can't take it from him. And now this man, who has the advantage of legs, uses his advantage to give him access to the lawmaker to get laws changed that will transfer the property of the disadvantaged into the hand of the person that is advantaged. He uses his advantage to malign, to lie, and ultimately steal from someone who can do absolutely nothing about it. Okay, Now, I don't know if you know this, but every single one of us in this room right now and in this country, we have been Mephibosheth, okay, over the past several years in this country. People that have advantages and access to lawmakers have lied and stolen from the rest of those that do not have the advantage or the defenses to prevent that from happening to them. There are reasons why certain things are put in place, laws and regulations are put in place, as much as we might hate that word. They're there to protect those that don't have the advantages that others do. And many of those things have been removed for the sake, and we understand what that feels like. Now, here's the part that kind of stinks, is that this never gets set right. It gets kind of halfway set right later on. But really, Ziba gets away with it. Later on, David is going to have a conversation with Mephibosheth, and David is going to hear Mephibosheth's side of the story. But by the time he gets there, he's so confused and he's so weary because of everything that happened that he just says, forget it. You guys split everything down the middle, and I don't want to see you anymore. And Mephibosheth never really gets justice. He gets kind of half justice, but he doesn't really get justice. And here's the reality for you and I is that a lot of the things that are taken from us or from taken from people because of oppressive, advantaged people that take advantage of others, much of that probably isn't ever really going to be set right on earth. But have you considered the end of the road? Have you considered what's going to happen in the end? I want to read to you a passage that I read this week in devotion in Psalm chapter 49. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm for time's sake, but you'll get the idea by the couple of verses that I pull out of it. It's a Psalm of the sons of Korah. And this man says this, this is his objective in verse four. He says, I will incline my ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. In other words, he says, I want to tell you guys a secret and I'm going to tell it to you in a song. It sounds like something right out of the 1970s, doesn't it? In verse six, he says, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. So that's who he's speaking about, the people that have advantages, that boast in those advantages, and that trust in the wealth that those advantages bring to them. Here's what he says about them in verse 11. He says, their inward thought... Is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, he says, man being in honor abideth not. In other words, just because you have an advantage or you have money or you have honor in your, according to your name or connected to your name now, He says, that doesn't mean it's going to last forever. He says, for he, that rich man, is like the beasts that perish. In other words, as go the animal kingdom, so goes the humankind. Everyone dies. He says, this their way is folly. Do you see that word there? It means foolish. Yet their posterity approve of their sayings. Meaning everybody looks at them and says, man, I wish I had it like they did. But God looks at them and he calls them fools. It reminds me of something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. He was talking about the man who said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And Jesus called him a fool. He said, you have no idea that this night your soul is going to be required of you. And then he says, whose things shall those be that you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus said, and so is everyone that trusts in their riches or is rich in this world, but is not rich towards God. In other words, Jesus is blatantly forthrightly saying is that if you are rich and you trust in your riches, but you don't know God, then you are a fool. Because the end of the road is that you're gonna die and you're gonna leave all of that behind and you're gonna have nothing for all of eternity. The advantaged person truly is the one who lives according to their integrity, that walks with and knows God and lives their life for him. And though they have little or nothing in this world, they will endure unto eternal life, and what they're given and what they have will last forever. See, so though sometimes there's no justice for Mephibosheth, and Ziba feels like he's won it all, Jesus says you're a fool because you don't understand the end of the road that you're on. Your end, your road will end abruptly and you'll have nothing. But the person who lives for God, their road will continue forever. They may seem lost, but in reality, they're the ones that are truly found. So Zeba here thinks, oh man, I am getting over. I am winning. I am taking the shortcut. But in reality, Ziba is on a road that will come to an abrupt end and there will be no hope for him in the final uh, analysis of things. Well, Ziba kind of gets his way here. He wins this political uh, battle in a sense. And then verse five, person number two, not just Ziba, but now Shimei. He wants a shortcut too. And when King David came to Baharim, behold, thence, or from there, came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, and so Ziba was a servant of Saul. This man's part of the family of Saul. Now you get the idea that the people that were related to and linked with Saul, they didn't like David for obvious reasons. Whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, And he came forth and he cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed. He said, Come out, come out, you bloody man. You man of Belial, that means you Satanist, you worshiper of the devil. Cast out, come out of the throne, throw your crown. You're a loser. The Lord has returned upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son, and behold, you are taken in your mischief, in your troublemaking, because you're a bloody man. Wow, this is intense. Can you imagine? This This guy, Ziba, I'm sorry, uh, Shimei, who now comes out to David, he's this opinionated, entitled, self-willed, unruly person who's throwing stones at David and cursing as he does and yelling these accusations, calling him a murderer, a Satanist, an insurrectionist, you know, this whole thing here, here is, 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 is Shimei. Now watch this. It says in verse nine, it says, then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah unto the king. Why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over. I pray thee and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It could be of God. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will requite me or repay me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. That's kind of stupid, right? I mean, you're throwing dust from an opposite mountain. You're the only one breathing it in, you know. The guy looked like Pigpen from Peanuts as he's walking along cursing David and spitting on himself. And it says that the king and all the people that were with him came weary and they refreshed themselves there. And so they're worn out and all of this is just adding on to it. You know, there's this thing that Jesus said, and uh, many of you are probably familiar with it. You've probably heard it before. You know, um, Jesus said, judge not lest you be. You ever heard that one? (laughs) You know, most people, maybe some people don't know that it was Jesus that said that, you know, but everyone's familiar with that phrase. And Jesus kind of expounded on that by saying this. He he said that, he said, with what measure you meet or give it out, it's with that same measure that it's going to be given back to you again. In other words, Jesus said, what goes around comes around concerning the judgments or conclusions that you come to concerning other people. And that's a universal law of God, that that's what's going to happen. That if you judge someone or come to conclusions about someone's situation, then it's probably going to come back around on you or to you in some way that's going to bring understanding and then shame to you. I remember... I remember when I was a, a kid, I went to camp every summer. My parents let me go, and, and it was always fun. It was so much fun that when I'd come home, I'd cry for a day because you, you know, maybe you've ever had that experience. You know? But I remember this one year we went, and there was this kid that I knew from my hometown, and he was in my cabin at night, and there was probably a dozen of us. And this guy, his name was Kevin Schwartz. He had, I'd never seen anything like it before. He had night terrors. And and I didn't know what that was. I had no context for it. But this kid was scared to death of the dark and of the night. And he would just shudder and cry in a cabin with a dozen young boys. Now, young boys are cruel. Did you know that? (laughs) Okay. They're like chickens. They find the weak one and they just peck them to death. And we had so much fun picking on Kevin Schwartz because he was afraid at night. I mean, and we were just laughing and doing things and making noises and putting things on his pillow and, and, and just literally tormenting this, this man, and, and this young man. And he was scared to death and didn't think anything of it. We're just kids having fun. And we didn't think anything of it. I didn't think anything of it until it happened to me. <laughs> until a moment came in my life, or maybe it wasn't night terrors and being afraid of the dark but a time when such crippling fear came over me. And to know what that felt like, and to have that go through you in in your mind, and not knowing, and, and just the sheer terror of life that can just come for whatever reason that comes. And once what went around from me came around to me, and I experienced what I had laughed at in someone else, immediately what was just innocent fun as a little kid became instant regret and shame and sorrow for the way I had treated him when he was going through what he went through. And to this day, I I hold that regret. From time to time, it it hits me. And I think about him and and wonder what happened to him and, and just how cruel that was. You know, it's awful. But I would never feel that. I would never know that if it hadn't happened to me. And here's what I've learned. Is that every way that I have ever judge someone, laughed at someone, treated someone for the way that they are that either I don't understand or doesn't make sense, it has in some way come around back on me where I've had to say, oh, oh. <laughs> Anybody else in here ever said oh? <laughs> you know? And you you were judging someone else and and, in, and and realizing that it was you. Listen to something that Paul said. It's 2 Corinthians I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Listen to this wise and brilliant instruction for you and I, the the shimmy eyes among us that like to conclude things about people not having the full story. He says this, he says, moreover, I'm sorry, I started in the wrong verse. It's uh, verse 3. He says, but with me. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or of man's judgment. He says, yea, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, I know that you guys probably look at my life and you say all kinds of things about me. He says, but I've learned to not care what you think. He says, in fact, I've learned to not care what I think. If I ever reach that level where I don't care what I think, uh, I'll be a free man. Paul was there. He says, for I know nothing by myself or against myself. Yet I'm, I'm not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. In other words, Paul says, I, I don't really understand even all that's going on inside of me. And what I have learned is that if I don't understand the fullness of what's going on in this situation, then I better stay out of the situation and not jump to conclusions concerning it because I don't really understand what's going on. And I've learned that that's true even about me that there are things that I thought about myself that were off or wrong or negative, that in time, God brought it around to help me understand that those things weren't necessarily what I thought they were. And in that, I have learned to not even put too much weight into my self-analysis. Therefore, he says, verse 5, judge nothing before the time. In other words, how much do we have the right to conclude about? Nothing. He says, judge nothing before the time. What's the time? Until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, meaning that God will uncover the unseen story behind what you are so sure you understand. God will bring the secret things of uh, of, of the darkness into the light, and he will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then watch this. This is a great ending to this. He says, then shall every man have praise of God. He doesn't even say that then shall every man be judged of God or every man will be condemned or evaluated or negated by God. He said that every man will have praise of God. In other words, Paul is giving every single person the benefit of the doubt. And he's saying, listen, you're judging and evaluating and concluding things about people that you don't understand even 4% of what the whole story is. And what you're calling negative and bad in someone's life, God is looking at it in the big picture of things that you can't fully understand. And when all of that is uncovered, they may have praise from God in the thing that you're condemning. Think about it. You say, That's an unkept house. God says those are well-kept kids, (laughs) right? We say that is a body that needs a little work. God says there's some things going on in the past of that person that you don't fully understand and they're fighting in a battle that you don't know and they've overcome some addictions that quite frankly, you're still struggling with. And maybe what you're putting emphasis on the outward they've placed emphasis on the inward and if you saw the big picture maybe you wouldn't be so quick to judge what's going on shimei understands less than four percent of the big picture concerning david and yet he is judging based upon what he thinks and what he sees and he has come to the conclusion that the man after god's own heart who is the gold standard of kings that he is a murderer an insurrectionist and a satanist He is completely wrong. Now, here's what I know about Shimei, is that those stones that he's hurling at David, those are the very seeds of his own demise. Because those stones that he's throwing at David today so confidently, thinking that he's so right, nine years from now are going to grow into something that's going to cost him his life. Be careful when you judge people unnecessarily or prematurely because you don't really understand what's going on and you, in your judging, are sowing the seeds of that very thing coming back upon you, even though it might take nine years. The question must be asked to Sheba, I'm sorry, Shimei, have you considered the end of the road that you've chosen? Because where this is going to lead you is ultimately to your death because of what you're doing right now in insulting, maligning, and casting stones at the king, the king of Israel. Be careful when you throw your stones. What happens at the end of the road? Now, if you're judged, if you're the one who the rocks are being thrown at, if you're the one that's being gossiped about and everybody's jumping to conclusions about what's going on in your life, you say, well, how do you handle that? You handle it like David did. How did he handle it? He didn't fight back. He didn't throw back. He said, let him curse. Maybe God's going to do something in this. Maybe God's going to use it in some way. And he said, furthermore, if I just let God fight this battle for me, maybe God will turn it around to be a blessing for me and I don't have to worry about it. And that's exactly what happens. That's the way you're to handle when people judge you that don't really understand everything that's going on in your life. Mind your business and keep going and consider What happens at the end of the road? Well, in verse 15, we come back to the drama between Ahithophel and Hushai, these two intelligence officers. It says in verse 15 that Absalom and all the people of the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And it came to pass that when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, was come to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your kindness to your friend? Why wentest thou not with your friend? In other words, I know you're David's friend and David's counselors. What are you doing here? Why aren't you with David in the wilderness? And Hushai said unto Absalom, nay, no, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his will I be and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Now, this is very strategic because he is completely 100% spy. He has no allegiance to Absalom at all whatsoever. And yet he is seeking to win a place at the table. You know, what's interesting is that he doesn't actually lie to Absalom. He just says to him, hey, whoever God chooses, that's the one I serve. He never says it's you. He he just said, I'm going to serve whom God has chosen and who all of Israel has chosen. Well, that just happens to be David. But he's appealing to Absalom's ego and his ambitious lust for power. And Absalom believes him and gives him a place at the table. And so Absalom said to Ahithophel, verse 20, Ahithophel being the first defector, the head of David's ex, the ex-head of David's CIA. He said to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. So he says, hey, Ahithophel, come into the situation room. I want you to give me an intel briefing. Tell me what you think we should do next. And so Ahithophel, verse 21, said to Absalom, first of all, go into your father's concubines. That means have sex with your father's concubines, the 10 women that he left in Jerusalem to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred of your father, hated by your father. Then shall the hands of all that are with you be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent on top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now that's a direct fulfillment of what God said would happen to David because of what he did with Bathsheba stealing her from Uriah. God said, you did what you did in secret, but I'm going to expose your wives in the presence of the son. And this is exactly what happens here. And then in verse 23, concerning Ahithophel, it says this, it says that the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. That's another word that's used for the Bible. In other words, that when Ahithophel spoke, his words were so wise and his ability to understand and give advice was so on point that it was as though someone said, hey, the Bible says do this. It was that good. And so was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now listen, if you have a gift like Ahithophel had, the ability to just see actions and outcomes and then to be able to give counsel concerning what should be done, understanding how the ripples are going to play out and the dominoes are going to fall way out beyond the immediate, that's an amazing gift from God. And if that gift is yielded in the hand of God, it is extremely powerful and beneficial. But if that gift is yielded to Satan or to self and it isn't surrendered to God in the way that it is designed, then it can become one of the most dangerous and most destructive things that exist on the planet among men. In fact, the only recourse when that kind of a gift is used in the wrong hands is that God is still stronger. Otherwise, watch out. Because it says that his counsel was that good with David and also with Absalom, both when it was used for good and now when it's used for evil. Moreover, chapter 17, verse 1. So here's now the battle strategy. First was the political move of going into David's concubines. Now the battle strategy. Ahithophel said unto Absalom, he said, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed and will make him afraid and all the people that are with him will flee and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom you seek is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. Okay, so Ahithophel gives his counsel first in the situation room. And essentially, it breaks down like this. He says, David, I'm sorry, Absalom, he says, here's the situation. David is tired, he's weak, he's afraid, and his men are discouraged and disorganized. He says, here's the strategy. Let's make a surgical, tactical strike with a small elite team. The timing of it is now. Because David is unadjusted, he's out of balance, and he's discouraged. And here's the objective. One man dies. We go in, we take out David and David only, and we bring back all of the others, and the outcome will be this, is that people's thirst for stability and normalcy is stronger than their political bias and allegiance. And if you can bring them back and give them the stability that they had before all of this was done, they will quickly forget about David and they will put their allegiance with you. And that is true, isn't it? People will give up almost anything for comfort and for normal. <laughs> are, are we not watching this go on all around us right now? But here's Ahithophel's counsel. It is simple, which is huge. It's simple. It is invisible. It is invisible. It's minimal, and it has minimal political kickback. There's very few people involved. There's very few people that actually will ever know what's going on. This is good, sound advice. It's a plausible strategy that would probably work. Ahithophel has this gift. Now, in verse 5, now Absalom says, you're dismissed, Ahithophel. I want to get another opinion. Call in Hushai. So verse five, Then said Absalom, Call now Hushai the archite also, and let us hear likewise what he says. And when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spoke unto him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. And Hushai said unto Absalom, The counsel of Ahithophel has not, or the a counsel that Ahithophel is given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not lodge with the people. He's wise. Behold, he is now hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will come to pass that when some of them, some of those 12,000 men that Ahithophel wants to send in, when some of those people are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say there is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, will utterly melt, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. In other words, if even a few of those 12,000 men die, it will kill the confidence of everyone else who has defected to you, and it will bring chaos and instability in your administration. Therefore, verse 11, I counsel that all Israel, not 12,000, but all Israel generally be gathered unto you from Dan, that's way up in the north, even to Bathsheba, or Beersheba, that's way down in the south, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude and that you go to the battle in your own person, that you lead the charge. You're the leader, lead. So shall we come upon him in some place where he'll be found. And we will light upon him as the dew falls upon the ground. We'll overwhelm him with numbers. And of him and of all the men that are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. We don't just kill David, we kill them all. No more political adversaries for you. There's no two sides of the aisle, there's one side of the aisle. Moreover, if he has gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city and we will draw it to the river. We'll comb the entire city plot by plot until there be not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the Archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then it says why. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. So now Hushai gives counsel to Absalom that is completely different and contrary to that of the former Ahithophel. First of all, he says, here's the situation. Yes, weak, yes, tired, yes, afraid. However, David is mighty. His men are mighty. He's a man of war. They are agitated like a bear who just lost its child. He's a man of war and he is wise. Have you forgotten who you're dealing with here? And if your men die, all will lose heart. Here's the strategy instead. He says, not 12,000, but all of Israel with you two. Basically, he says, go big or go home. If you're going to do it, do it right. Comb the land. And here's the objective. Not one man, but kill them all. Kill every last one of them until there's no political adversaries. And everyone will know that you are a force to be reckoned with Absalom and your beautiful hair. And he did have beautiful hair. If you weren't here last week, you can read the previous chapter. You know, Well, Absalom hears all this and his chest puffs up. And he goes, man, that sounds really good. But I want you to think about his counsel for a minute. It wasn't simple. It wasn't concise. It wasn't silent. It wasn't easy. It was very complex. It was very drawn out. How long does it take to send messengers all throughout the land and gather every fighting, able man to go? It gives David time. It's a drawn-out plan. It's not small. It's huge. It's divisive. Because Absalom's not considering that not everyone in Israel likes Absalom. And all of a sudden, you're fueling the seeds of division. And you could have civil war break out right in the middle of it. It's a very unrealistic plan, and it's actually a really bad idea. But it appeals to Absalom's ego, and he's the type of man that doesn't have to listen and doesn't want to listen to the people that are around him. And so he says, I like your plan better. So we're going to go with your plan. Now watch what happens. Verse 15. It says, Then said Hushai unto Zadok and Abiathai the priests, Thus and thus did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and thus have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, Lodge not this night in the plains of the wilderness, but quickly pass over, lest the king be swallowed up and all the people that are with him. So he sends intelligence by the hand of the priests. And Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who were the sons of the priests, stayed by Enrogel that they might not be seen to come into the city. And a wench went and told them, and they went and told King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, but they went both of them away quickly and came to a man's house in Baharim, which had a well in his court, which they went down. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground corn thereon, and the thing was not known. That sounds like a movie plot, doesn't it? And when Absalom's servants came to the woman to the house, they said, Where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said unto them, Oh. They'd be gone over the brook of water. They ran off that way, chasing a frisbee or something. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And it came to pass after they were departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said unto David, Arise and pass quickly over the water, for thus hath Ahithophel counseled against you. So just in case they go with plan A, here's how you protect yourself. So David arose and all the people that were with him and they passed over Jordan by the morning light. There lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan. So he escapes clean out of the country so that even if they comb the land, they still won't be able to find David. Now watch verse 23. It's the pinnacle of our text. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and get him home to his house, to his city, and he put his household in order, and he hanged himself, and he died, and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. What? He's dead? Here's what happens. Ahithophel, who can see the ripple effects and the play-by-play, and the falling effect of the dominoes as they successively move after actions are taken and decisions are made. He can see the end of what he's going to come to and the end of the road that he has chosen. And he concludes in seeing what's going to successively follow that it would be better for me to take my own life than it would be for me to live through and see what's about to happen because he understands the implications and the consequences of it. Jesus said important words. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 7, and it's verse uh, 13 and 14. He said this. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate or the narrow gate. He says, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way or the path or the road that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. And then he goes on and he says, because straight or narrow, tight, it's a tight fit. It's small. Narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Jesus says there are essentially two choices. There are two ways, there are two roads. There are not many roads, there are only two in this life. There is one that is exceedingly wide, and it has very many options and lanes that you can travel in on that wide road. It's very easy to get into, it's easy to find, and by far it is the easier road. But Jesus says that the end of that road is destruction, that where it leads to is a sudden stop. And it seems alluring and attractive because of what's on it and because there's so many people in it that it gives validity to its existence. But Jesus says you've got to consider the end of the road that you're on and not just what's happening right now. And then he said there's another way. It's very narrow. It's very small. It's not, it's not that it can't be found. It's not that you even have to search very far for it. It's just narrow. And because of the narrowness of it, And because of the absence of many people on it, it seems like it's less valuable. But Jesus says that road is exceedingly different than the other one because the people that choose that road and take that road for what it is are gonna end up with life. And the end of that road is exceedingly different than the end of the wide road that most people just find themselves on. And Ahithophel and Ziba, and Shimei, and Absalom, and multitudes of millions of people that have lived throughout the ages of history have chosen the wide road because of what it promises now, but never considered where this road ends. My son Riley was sifting through mail this morning on the kitchen table, and he said, Dad, you got a letter, you got a letter, you got a letter, and I said, Who's it from? And he says, American Express. <laughs> I just laughed. I said, oh, they're trying to sell me a credit card. And he goes, sell you a credit card? He's trying to compute that. Make, oh, I said, oh, okay. Well, I guess they're, they're offering me a, a credit card. And, and we got into a little conversation about it. And I just said, it's a really bad idea. It's actually a really bad deal. I said, they give you money up front and you can spend it, but then you got to pay it back, but you got to pay back more. And by the time you're done, you paid twice and sometimes three times, four times, it's a whole, it's a bad deal. He goes, bad. He goes, deal? I said, oh, I, I said, yeah, I guess it is. The deal is you get it now. That's the deal. You want a TV? You get it now. You want a car? You get it now. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to save up for it. You get it now. That's it. You just get it now. And now appeals to people. People want it now. And they will trade what might come later or what will come later in order to get what they're desiring or thirsting for now. There's so many people that will do it. And so they'll get on a road that's going to take them to a destination. And they'll choose that road based upon what it means today and what my needs are now, but never considering what the end of that road is. David chose a different path, different than Absalom, Ziba, Shimei, who shot, uh, Ahithophel, David, David chose it. David said, no, I, I'm not going to curse back at Ziba. I'm not going to fight for my throne. I'm not going to do things the way the rest of those on the, bro- I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to do it God's way. And, and here's what I know, David would say. It's very uncertain. I, I do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm very much uncomfortable right now. This is not the kind of situation I saw myself in at this age of my life but he said, I know that God is with me and I know that he's going to do what's right for me. And even if it's his will right now that I be cursed and maligned and stoned, I know that in the end, if I follow him and trust in him, the outcome is going to be life and I would rather be where he's going to lead me than where I can lead myself if I do it my way. When I was 19 years old, I was unsaved. I was not brought up in a Christian home and I was gone the way of the world. And I remember there was a a point that I came to. I had this idea in my mind about what life should be like. People should be free. People should be able to live the way they want. People should be uninterrupted by authority in in a negative sense. And I I just had this idea in my mind. So my friend said, hey, let's let's travel for a week. We're going to go on tour with this band. He says, it's going to be great. You know, we're going to travel. We'll be free. We're going to, I'm like, yeah, this is good. You know, so I, I go with him. I go with his girlfriend and there's another guy with us and we travel and we go for a week and we follow this band. And at the end of that week, it ended with a three day long concert on an Air Force base up in Bangor, Maine. And when you come into the Air Force base, they lock you in and you're there for three days. There are no police. There is no authority. There are no rules. You can do what you want. And as they closed that gate behind us, I said, this is what I have been thirsting for and waiting for my entire life. Freedom. (laughs) And then I saw people my age, not even 20, with babies strapped to their back, selling acid out in the open to everyone, just shouting out, and people flocking to them to buy acid from someone with a baby on their back. I saw old men, too old, with dreadlocks, gray ones, and big beards, riding unicycles naked up and down the aisles of where the people's tents were. Naked, not even almost naked, naked. That's a picture you can never get out of your mind, you know, and, and I'm sorry for cursing you with it at the end of a Bible study tonight, you know, for the more vivid imaginations out there. I saw people whose sole purpose for being out in the morning was to find a mate for their dog. Hey, does your dog want to... And I looked at my, my friend who I'd gone with, my best friend at the time. I looked at him and I said, do you see this? And to and, and me, it was, do you see this? And he said, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and, I, and I remember something switched inside of me. And I said, no, I said, no, it's not. And, and within a week from that day, I got saved. I gave my life to Christ. And here's why. Don't don't clap. We all have the same story. And some, right? We came to Christ, we saw, here's what it is. By the grace of God, he allowed me to see a glimpse of what's at the end of that road. And, and and he gave me the grace and the wisdom to say, I choose something else. And then he showed me a way that is open to everyone. See, the easy the, the, the narrow way, the way that leads to life, it, it's narrow but it's accessible and it's open and it's been provided by Jesus Christ and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins so that no matter what road you're on here, whatever you're thirsting for, hungering for, or willing for, that you are manipulating the circumstances of your life around in order to try to obtain it. Ultimately, it's just gonna end in destruction. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I'm meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. And that way is open. And I beseech you tonight, if you are on the broad path, if you are even on the broad path after being on the narrow path and you're trying to make the two paths one path, the broad path is your will for your life. What you want, when you want it, how you want it. The narrow path is his will, his way. One of those is known but uncertain, and the other one is uncertain but known. He says it leads to life. Jesus said, the Bible says, Jesus is the Bible, right? He's the word. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 22, he says this. He says, like the life of a tree will be the life of my people. I, I read that for the first time, and I thought, does that like mean we're going to live for a long time? Does that mean we stay in one place? Like, what does that mean? I, I understand it. It doesn't mean that you're going to live in the sense of like forever, because trees fall down, they don't last forever. But here's the thing about a tree, makes it different than a human, is that a tree develops and grows for the span of its entire life. It never stops developing. And when you get on the narrow way and you begin walking with God, it is very uncertain, because you're like, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you doing these things in my life? And what's going on? And where am I headed? And And there's so many uncertainties but you will grow and you will develop and you will, you will build. He will bless. It's gonna, it just keeps going. It's life. It leads to life. If you don't know the narrow way, I beseech you, get on it. There's nothing like it. Uncertain, but known. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We, we ask in Jesus' name that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Thank you for showing us the truths of your word. And tonight, Lord, I pray that you would give every one of us in this place the cognitive, spiritual ability to see the end of the road that we're on right now. And if transition needs to take place, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the blood of your Son, Jesus, you would give us the willingness to repent and turn and the power to change course. So help us, Lord, for we need you now, and we trust you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it, and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.